Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And with that, it's my great pleasure to introduce three scholars of the Amdi Muslim community and regular panelists on the Faith Matters. Assalamu alaikum, gentlemen. Welcome to Faith Matters. To my right, of course, is Dr. Zayed Ahmed Khan Sahib, who's president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence here in the UK. Uh, to his right, of course, is Molana Azar Hanif Sahib, who joins us from the United States, where he's the vice president of the community and also a senior missionary there. And to his right is, of course, the respected Molana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who's a senior missionary here in the UK and also head of the French desk. Welcome, gentlemen. And we're going to travel, as would be entirely appropriate, to the USA. First of all, we'll indeed take a question from Alia Salim. Assalamu alaikum. Alia, thank you very much for your kind comments about faith matters. It's quite a wide-ranging question Alia is asking, gentlemen. She's asking what does the Quran or indeed Islam say, and I'll list them here, there's no better way to do it, about number one, the Bermuda Triangle, secondly, about dinosaurs, and for good measure, she's thrown in aliens and asteroids hitting the Earth. Are asteroids going to hit us, Jangir well, Or have, have they hit us? Indeed, well, they, they have. have they, they have, so they could again. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, that's all in the hands of Allah. Mm -hmm. He's going to decide when he's going to have this happen. It might be on a very small scale and it might also be quite major and who knows it might bring about another mass extinction as it did in the past in the case of the dinosaurs which brings us to the dinosaurs Indeed. now we do not have anything against dinosaurs in the Holy Quran we have spoken about this previously on uh, on other faith matters programs the time scale of the universe according to the Holy Quran runs into the billions of years we have uh, presented the calculations for this before but based, and these are based on Quranic verses, but um, they haven't been mentioned as such, except we do find that in the Hadith, the Holy Prophet Muhammad says that prior to the creation of mankind, God had, had created some very disagreeable things. And so we might infer from that that they would be disagreeable, obviously, to human beings, and that might include the dinosaurs, which are those, you know, lizards that uh, create terror and the strike you know the hearts of fear so it, that might be included in there there have been so many creatures god has always been creating and uh, so those those would be uh, part of them and there's as i said nothing in islam which uh, says that that doesn't exist but on the other hand if you have a world view <coughs> as they say today a creationist world view which is the in a pejorative sense that you believe that the whole world and everything in it was created within six days. There are some Muslims also who hold on to this view, unfortunately, which is a very literal reading of the texts. Um, then there is no place for dinosaurs unless you want to squeeze them into that time scale and then have them extinct within a day or two. So that just doesn't make any sense. 
Now coming to uh, aliens, the, the Holy Quran actually does uh, allude to life on other planets and uses words which imply intelligent life and also makes a prophecy that a day will come when Allah will, whenever he so desires, un unite the intelligent life on earth and the intelligent life in the heavens. Now how that's going to happen only Allah knows but it's going to be a big event because it's mentioned in the Holy Quran otherwise it wouldn't have been mentioned in the first place. As far as the Bermuda Triangle is concerned that of course uh, is something which uh, is of the realm of uh, Hollywood and superstitions. There isn't any credible evidence backing the fact that there might be as some think you know, aliens living under the ocean or something like this who are attracting planes down so that they can, <laughs> you know, maybe experiment on the, the, the planes and the people inside them, etc. Mm -hmm. All this is, uh, you know, of the domain of the imagination of people. If it so happens that uh, there have been several uh, aviation accidents in the area, that in no way, you know, indicates that there's something, uh, you know, fishy Not going well. on there, if I may say so. <laughs> um, sorry for the pun. <laughs> but uh, Islam would have nothing to say about that. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories like this, you know, which are rampant these days, especially on the internet. Um, this, this is just one of them. Islam has nothing to say on that. Jazakumullah, Jahangir Saab. Azhar Saab, Jahangir Saab so eloquently fought with some of these uh, we can sort of designate over to Hollywood or although someone when you I'm sure there's been films on the Bermuda Triangle certainly dinosaurs aliens absolutely and asteroids hitting the earth and starting again and so on. some of these of course as Jahangir Saab has said is history and they're well documented but taking if I may the concept of aliens first of all um, even in the Surah Fatiha the first chapter of the Holy Quran it's written it describes God of the world. So the God is not just limited to this world, but the world after. I suppose the question that then comes is, as we've seen science itself making historical steps forward, we obviously in the late 60s we had the landing on the moon. Most recently we've got the uh, you know, the um, capsule that's been sent out and, and we've got Roma on Mars at the moment. And indeed in Mars they're now seeing that there are certain similarities with the planet Earth mm -hmm. that would actually make life possible. Indeed they're discovering that there's certain forms of life. Is there a junction, a juncture given in the Quran or through an Islamic perspective that when, at what time, where and how people will or different people of worlds will meet? Well, the specific verse I don't have in front of me right now, as Jahangir Sahib said, the, the Quran throughout mentions something quite interesting. If you read the words in Arabic, the word for, for who in Arabic is man, mm. man. And throughout the Quran, this is Rab man fis samawati wal ard. It's repeated over and over again, especially means whoever is in samawati, the heavens, wal ard, in the earth. Well, we know who is in the earth, and who won't refer to the creatures. It refers to the, the animate beings as well. The animate beings who are intelligent, who are kind of sharing that space. So sharing the space of the earth, the human beings, and samawat, the heavens as well. So it's throughout the Quran and throughout the hadith, the prayers we often say that include this expression. So it shows us that we should be open to the possibility. And when it will happen, where it will happen, that we can't pinpoint, neither in time nor in place. But we should be receptive to the idea to begin with. And that's something that was rejected well in, the, in, in even recent past. It was 
hocus-pocus nonsense that this, this even life, intelligent life out, out of space. Now the scientific community has shifted themselves to get us to believe in this generation that no life can exist beyond this earth and, and more likely it will be intelligent life as well. So we're limited by our domain and Quran says this, so do you, you go as far as you can, let your eye go as far as it can, they'll keep coming back fatigued. And, but Rahman, you know, the gracious God, he never fatigues. His, his kingdom is far beyond what you can imagine. Now, taking that thought alone, mm -hmm. we have arrogated to ourselves a domain of God that is limited to what, as far as we can go. And, but now science keeps pushing the, the domain further and further with new discoveries, new planets, new universes. And so this idea of Rabbul Alameen, the Lord of all these universes, is really coming to play now. We can see this is just one small, tiny drop in the entire galaxy and universe we're living in. It's so small, the Earth, mm -hmm. and the, the system that we're living in, the solar system we're living in. There's no way a human <clears throat> being who's studied recent science can, can even begin to think we have fathomed even our own universe, much less other universes. So when that being the case, I, to, to me the question always be how will they communicate? Because they say if a rocket ship will leave Earth today and go to Mars, we would all be dead by the time we would come back. And generations after us will also would die. It'll take that long to come back. So the, the struggle is in the minds is how will we communicate with, with intelligent life which is far beyond Mars? If it'll take us so long to reach them and for them to get a message back, it has to be something else. And in this day and age of technology, we're seeing how it's advancing to show us we can communicate without being in a particular space. And, and thus communication systems somehow in the future may be created. With that, with with this in mind, indeed. I mean, if you look at the world today, and you just talked of you know rockets and spaceships, you know, no one thought the space shuttle was possible that you could send an aircraft out and which could then come back mm -hmm. and land. No one thought we'd land on the moon and mm -hmm. uh, and have men come back alive. That's happened, indeed. No one thought we'd go get as far as Mars, and even that, you know, it may be. Star Wars and Star Trek that talks of these light speed, you know, light years away. Mm -hmm. But, you know, who thought Concord would be able to get across, you know, mm -hmm. the Atlantic in three hours? Yet all these mm -hmm. things, which perhaps 100, 150 years ago mm -hmm. were thought unimaginable or impossible. Mm -hmm. Indeed, impossible is probably a word regularly used. Yes, yes. Um, is now true. Indeed, the, the Earth was flat at one time and we were going to fall off the edge. I mean, let's not forget well, some, that's the, some, in the context some, of history. A few, a few people some, had that concept. Yeah. I think even that's blown out of proportion. Portion. Yeah, they, were, they, were, they used to say all of Europe believed it. All of Europe did not believe that. There were certain segments in society who were proposing, you know, proposing this as a theory. And, and again, that shows how we always limit our domains to what we know. And that's our com comfort space, you know, because beyond that is, it is the, the realm of the unknown and that sometimes becomes scary. <clears throat> so if you were to ask me, when would it happen? My own mind and heart tells me it would happen when we have embraced this idea and we're ready to receive whatever comes our way and not fear it. And our first response, therefore, will not be send the missile and destroy it. It'll be let's, you know, engage it and, and see what we can benefit from, from this experience. And Just right now, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I, I was going to say, coming back to Hollywood, you know, it seems that uh, that is the fear, isn't it? Because it's the great unknown that's always perceived, or mostly, not always, but mostly perceived to be a threat. Mm -hmm. If it's coming, it's going to take over our planet, you know, the, the alien life, etc. It's decreasing with time, yeah. though. I mean, it used to be the definite threat, you know, the Martian, the alien. You know, the mm. alien always had the concept, like now it's illegal alien. You know, you're coming in and taking over, so get them out of here. But yeah. now, the, of course, uh, 
I, I have nothing against anyone who wants to move to a country and please let's set the record straight. Islam is of not that faith that believes that this world should be us against the world. Yeah. It's, it's an open world. I'm saying it always was the case. Whenever we would grow up and hear about the life out of space coming, there was a fear. There's an immediate reaction that oh, oh, now there's going to be the war with the worlds in the out of space. But I think science is getting us to embrace the possibility of learning from this experience and gaining from experience. So the fear is going down <clears throat> and the natural inquisitiveness and, and curiosity is increasing. And we want to really connect with these people and that's this, or these beings. It's amazing how education can be this kind of source. Absolutely. You know, I mean, you talked about, you know, aliens coming in by even taking the concept of immigration quite often. Yes, understandably, there's economic arguments, but at times there's arguments of fear, of ignorance, which are used. And through education, a lot of these barriers are overcome. And I always am minded to think if aliens are looking at the planet Earth right now and with the conflict they see, for example, mm. self-inflicted in many parts of the world, they probably think, well, well we keep well away for the time being. I mean, yeah. this actually shows us the weakness of man as well mm. in, in many respects. And you've spoken about the scientific advancements of man. And that has been phenomenal. But despite that, what we have is a minuscule understanding of the universe. And this brings us back to the subject of uh, the uh, vastness of Allah's creation. <coughs> and the Holy Quran, as you have mentioned, both of you have talked, Holy Quran talks incessantly about this, that this is the creation of Allah, that you cannot imagine the boundaries mm -hmm. that exist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think Alia in her question had an interesting mix, and both of you have uh, dealt very eloquently with that. One thing that uh, came to my mind was the Bermuda Triangle and the aeroplane that went down the MH370. I mean, had it not been for advancement of science, we may have thought that this was another disappearance of an aircraft over the China Sea with no trace of it. Mm -hmm. But perhaps we will find that aircraft and maybe we, they will find it. But that again shows that despite all the satellites that were out there, all the tracking equipment that were out there and, and can be used, we can still lose an aircraft even mm -hmm. on this earth. Mm -hmm. And that shows that man is not aware yeah. of the creation of Allah, even on this earth, yeah. let alone in the whole of the universe. Mm -hmm. And this is what Allah says, that uh, your gaze will continue to come back to you and you will see no flaw mm -hmm. in the creation of Allah. And that really brings to our hearts that the Creator has created something that we cannot fathom and understand fully in, in any respect. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah for that. A wide-ranging question, but my thanks also, of course, to Alia for her question. Um, we're going to come back <coughs> to home territory for our next question to here in London to Sayyid Ahmed Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Sayyid Sahib. Uh, thank you for your question. He's, um, we've covered this in previous programs before as well, but he's asking about Islam and the notion of nationalism. Um, he said we often see people talking about them and us and uh, there was a time he recounts where people started a school day by standing and reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, as I saw, that still happens in the US now and perhaps it's a trait. But I think he talks of nationalism, whereas the example he gives is what I would define as patriotism. There's a distinction between the two. Uh, loyalty to country shouldn't mean an antagonistic or aggressive attitude towards another. And he's saying, does Islam support the concept of loyalty, I suppose, to country? And indeed, as I said, in America, we find in the US, even in, in schools at the start of the day, that oath of allegiance to one's country is taken by all. That's right. That's right. You know, this was something which was promoted by the Holy Prophet Muhammad, mm -hmm. 
in, in his day and age because the, the Arab nation that he lived in was predominantly the, the Arab tribes who were there, but there were also others from surrounding nations who became immigrants and, and settled there and, and lived there amongst them. And the sense of trying to create a community amongst them was, was very much uh, at the forefront of his message of Islam. Islam is, is telling us about the universal order. And we talked about earlier that Rabbil Alameen, the Lord of all the worlds, is, is a comprehensive, inclusive idea. There's nothing in that idea that allows us to separate ourselves as a creation because we're saying the, the creator himself is a, a, a unified, is uni he's one. And so humanity in this creation also has to be unified, has to be one. Nonetheless, the need for people living in any geographic territory to, to be uniform and to work together and to cooperate in a cooperative society, to create civil order and, and social justice for all and, and economic balance and all these things, it's, it's important for that group to feel united as a people. And this is why he said, the love of your nation, your people, your homeland, is also a matter of faith, a part of your faith. It's an expression of this faith where you say you believe in one God and believe in that all is one God. So now become one people, but the people should never discriminate against the other in the process. It should be a healthy kind of competition which the Quran speaks about in a sense. khairat is the idea it mentions that you know you should compete but a competition that raises everyone's standard toward excellence, not where you're trying to destroy the other and make yourself, I, I, I dumb you down to make myself look intelligent as they say. No, I want you to bring your best, I'll bring my best and all of us improve in the process. One of these companions who was a foreigner amongst the, the Holy Prophet Muhammad at that time was Hazrat Salman from Faras, the, the land of Persia as you would say. And his story was quite interesting. He was enslaved as a child. He was, he was brought to Arabia in, in, in the wrong way. He, he grew up amongst the, the priests and they finally told him about prophecies of the coming of this person. And eventually he, he, he went to Medina and saw the messenger, had some engagement with him and recognized him as the, as the prophet of Islam and became a Muslim. Living amongst the Arabs and the Jewish tribes at that time, he was one of the sole for, foreigners but he learned this, the teachings of Islam so much the Prophet loved him and loved his spirit and his understanding of the depth of Islam. And uh, on one occasion, the companions were sitting around talking about who they were. And, and some of them would mention that I'm from so-and-so tribe and, and, and I'm from so-and-so people. And they were, they were extolling the glories of their tribes, their people. And he's sitting and listening and finally they asked him, oh, so, who, so who are you? And wanted to hear what he had to say. And he said that basically, I am the son of so-and-so, and I was a, a slave, and I was freed by the Holy Prophet Muhammad And I was, a, I was a poor person, and I was enriched by the Holy Prophet Muhammad And this is my, my origin, and this is my nationality. In other words, he pushed everything else aside except for what he felt was most important that linked all of us, was I'm linked to a faith and I'm linked to a creator that has given me life. This is who I am. And in essence, this is what Islam was all about. You know, some time ago I, I came across a very interesting uh, research done by a person from here from Britain. His name, I believe, Spencer Wells. Mm -hmm. He's a gen geneticist. He went around the entire world on a project to try to discover the origin of man. 
And what he found was that 50,000 years ago, he, he linked it right back to a tribe in Africa and said, this was the man who went around, their tribe went around the entire world and you can trace their DNA amongst all the people. And he said 99% and greater of DNA of all people is exactly the same. And once you, you begin to see what he's saying, the changes in the composition, the features of all people, were only a matter of this evolution over the course of time. Otherwise, we are all truly one people. We're all truly one race. Mm -hmm. There's really no idea of, of a, a separation of nationalities and, and, and cultures and languages. That came well after the fact. So if this concept would sink into the mankind, the fact is we're all truly brothers as the Holy Prophet himself said. This was his, his final great message to mankind before he left this earth. He said, this is the word, tell everybody here and let everyone here tell everyone else they meet. And this is the message for all time. Your God is one, your ancestor are one, you're all one people, and this brotherhood should be like the fingers of a hand, completely equal, the Arab is no better than the non-Arab. The people of lighter races is no better than the dark races and vice versa. You have to be united. Mm -hmm. And we have been caught up in nationalities. We've been caught up in the lingual differences, the cultural differences, the, the racial features, and it's created nothing but disharmony in the, in the world. What he's trying to tell us is we need to step back, even as nations, and recognize our unity. You know, I, have, I can look at and see a European who's much different in my complexion, but I look past that and see the blood that's in him, and that blood is exactly the same blood flowing through me, and then recognizing that we are truly one as brothers. Mm -hmm. And this Jamaat, we all feel it. Mm -hmm. We don't feel it when we meet each other, that there's a, a, a difference between you who come from France, and he came from Pakistan, and, and, and India, and, and, and from USA, originally from Africa. But you sit together and that, that concept never sinks into your mind when you're meeting because you know you're meeting on a different level. But for much of humanity, this is still the problem. This is still the issue. Mm -hmm. This nationalism, as he's talking about, and this, this loss of sense of who you are and the balance with others is, is still creating racial tensions, it's still creating national problems, it's still creating geopolitical problems around the world, you know, one nation trying to overthrow another nation. Islam is saying, no, you are one people. Think of it this way. Now how much better will this world be? That's for all of us to, to, to discuss and, and try to understand. The but thing is that nationalism can, nationalism can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. This is, as you're saying, it's unfortunately the, the picture of what we see today is the unhealthy kind of nationalism, the eth ethnocentric nationalism. Right. Then we get further down the tribal nationalism. Mm -hmm. You know, my tribe's better than as you alluded to, mm -hmm. you know, even within one country. Right. And mm -hmm. in, the, in the UK we have a lot of that. We have the Welsh, we have the, the Scots. We have the English, we have the Irish, you know, so there's all that as well. Right. Then we have the North and South divide. So there are all those divisions. So uh, what do you make of nationalism, you know, in all that? Because the Holy Prophet did say, as you, as you said in the beginning, you know, so that's part of our faith yes. to actually love. So it should be a healthy competition between that's nations, right. helping each other as well right. as we go along. Right. You know, what, what, I, what comes to my mind is sometimes you see these races between people from different countries. They're very enjoyable to watch and everyone of course is you know, cheering on his own country or her own country. Mm. But the ones that really stick in your mind are the ones where one of the, the runners falls and another one stops and says you know, to the four winds of the race and goes back 
and picks that person up and walks him limping to the end. Mm. Those are the ones that really stick in your mind. Mm. You know, you can never forget that, that, that kind of mm. scenes, you know? Mm. And I think this is how nations should be vying with each other. They should be, yes, you know, saying, okay, we're going to cheer on our own country and we're, we're going to pray for its advancement. But it can never be at the cost of the advancement of the other nations. Mm -hmm. And if any of them falls on the way, then we have to stop and pick them up and carry them with us. It's the only way forward. Mm -hmm. That kind of brotherhood, Jazakallah, gentlemen, for that, just as a final point on this, not as I saw as well, about patriotism and there's this symbolism that's sometimes used with flags and countries. Jahangir um, Saab just touched about, you know, you sort of supporting your own country or whatever. In our community, and I'm talking about the Amdiya Muslim community here, it is quite specific, reviving that same spirit of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, about that being a patriot, being strong and passionate about your country is very much part of faith. And we see the symbolism through, for example, the raising of the national standard, be it the Union Jack in the UK, the Stars and Stripes in the US at every national event. And that sends a very strong symbol in pledges that are recited throughout our auxiliary organisations. Loyalty and strength and support for one's country is part and parcel of something we try and instill very much in community members as part of faith. Absolutely. I mean, Ahmadis as a global movement is not limited to one country, is not limited with boundaries. But wherever Ahmadis are, and we, we find them by the grace of Allah throughout the world in the corners of the earth, as was foretold to the Promised Messiah, you will always find that they are patriotic to the country that they live in. And when we come together at the Jalsa Salana, for instance, we also raise flags and we raise flags and you will see them in, in the field, the flags of wherever the Jamaat Ahmadiyya is, wherever our brotherhood is. So the Holy Prophet as Azazab has said in the farewell address said, O oh mankind, you are the children of Adam and Adam was made of clay. So that brings to our mind the unity that mankind has with each other and the, also the humble beginnings that we all came from. So nationalism, when it has negative uh, connotations, as Jahangir Sahib has said, the Holy Prophet in Hadith has said that it is rotten, you should leave it. So that is nationalism, but it, but it is uh, separate from patriotism, and we are loyal to the country and we serve the country wherever we live without actually injuring the uh, feelings and sentiments of other countries as such. There's one thing I wanted to add, if I may, and it is there's a word of warning also in all this. Allah says in the Quran, Tilkal nas. These days we alternate them between the people. So sometimes you will have days of prosperity and at other times you will have days of duress. And today's advanced nations may well be the ones which will be backward tomorrow. So the ones who are advanced today, if they help the ones that are not so advanced to go forward, it may well be that in the near, in the near future, those very nations that they helped will be the ones they will have to turn to when they are in dire straits. So we always have to you know, view these matters with a lot of humility. Man is insignificant, as uh, Dr. Sabat said, and also when you brought up uh, Spencer Wells, you know, I'd also seen the documentary. It's on YouTube, it's available on the internet. You know, The Journey of Man, The Genetic Odyssey. It's a very nice documentary, which just brings, brings that idea back to home, you know, to roost. But we're all from one source. 
And so the pride, the false prides we take in these things and those things, they're meaningless if we don't move forward together, you know, with our, our national pride and with our, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what have you, you know, our love for our country and all that, of course, mm -hmm. but never at the cost of the other, mm -hmm. because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and we shouldn't pride ourselves in what we've got because we might not have it tomorrow. Mention one, one final scene which combines both ideas. It was the day of the fall of Mecca when all of the different tribes of the mm. Muslims gathered under flags, as you mentioned flags, mm. and they were all there and they were all lining up under the particular flags to indicate which tribes they were from, even though they're all Muslims. And they're about to march into this city, however, in a unified body under these different flags. So both concepts were, were being supported by the Holy Prophet mm -hmm. Muhammad mm -hmm. He allowed each tribe to identify itself as being under these flags. But the greater body, all united now, were marching together on God's house to unite once again in worship to the one God in, in the faith of Islam. And again, this uh, companion Salman didn't have a flag to go under because there were no other Persians around there. And he mm. was kind of the odd man out once again, and he didn't know where to turn. So the Holy Prophet Muhammad then showed what he's talking about, the, the ability to include and embrace that person who is weaker, who's, who's less in number. And he pulled him under his flag as his family. And he said, Salman min ahli, min ahli bed. That now Salman, from this time forward, will be considered part of my family and part of, in a sense, my flag which is the flag we have all gone over who are non-Arabs and don't have any other link to the tribes there. This, this combines both of these kinds Unified. of things. It should be the way we should move forward. So be a British person by all means and love it and be, or be American or French or whatever and love it. But at some point you have to also be a human being and love the human race and the human family and support one another. This is what we should move toward. Zakhmala, gentlemen. Um, and uh, all angles covered there, I think, in every element of it as well. And my thanks uh, to Sayyid Ahmed Saab for his question. Our next question comes from Nurlan Siddiqui in London. Um, Jahangir Saab, Nurlan is asking about sleep, uh, sleep uh, paralysis and was wondering if there is a religious explanation for this. You see, the soul behaves in very weird and mysterious ways and we've been given very little knowledge of what it does what its relationship to the body is, what its relationship to the mind is, to the, to the heart. There are so many aspects to this that we, c we cannot rule out you know, certain uh, phenomena which are experienced by people where they feel that their soul has actually left their body temporarily and is aware of things out on the outside. That's one kind of phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, uh, you know, maybe it, it even might leave, and as they, they call it, the, the, you know, the, the voyage of the astral body. So it's like your soul is leaving the body and is actually going on a long voyage around the world and is seeing things and reporting things that it couldn't have seen otherwise, which are all true. So there's a lot, you know, going on which we don't know. Is that actually the soul going or is it just the consciousness of man which can be projected? We don't really know. But uh, to actually categorically, you know, say that... Uh, Sleep paralysis is a phenomenon where, for example, some people might say, you know, that, uh, that the, the soul was taken out by God mm -hmm. and hasn't been, it's, hasn't been sent back. This is based on a verse of the Quran where Allah says that when you are sleeping, Allah, in a, one, in a manner of uh, speaking, takes your soul and then those, uh, you know, for whom death has not yet been appointed, 
are sent back mm -hmm. to the bodies. Although it doesn't mention the word bodies, but I'm just paraphrasing mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And those who are supposed to die in their sleep then are retained. Now, the first thing we have to realize about the soul is that the soul isn't a physical thing, first of all. But it has a relationship with the physical thing, which is the body. So does it really travel? Does it really go anywhere, you know, physically speaking? Or does mm -hmm. it just move from one state to another of consciousness? From, from one set of, uh, you know, uh, dimensions to another set of dimensions? We really don't know. And this is why Allah says that they ask you about the souls in the Qur'an. Tell them that we've, we, that we've only been given very little knowledge of it. It's something which we cannot actually fathom entirely, and we cannot ever. But we can, of course, <coughs> investigate some of its, you know, the, of its effects on the body and on consciousness. These things are being investigated, and they form part, perhaps, of parascience, but uh, <coughs> they are you know, being investigated in some countries more than others, in particular in Russia. A lot of uh, studies have been carried out on these phenomena, you know, of, the, of, the, uh, of, of another type, you know, which are not usually encountered. So there's a, there's a whole vista out there which needs to be seen, but we cannot categorically de determine what is happening to the soul while we're asleep, what's happening to the soul when we die. We don't really know what actually happens, but we just know that we, we go from one state to another. That's all we know. I mean, just on this, Dr. Saab, I mean, out-of-body experiences is something which a phenomenon which is talked about a lot and I think Nurulan also is talking you know that and, and we've all been there I'm sure where you've had that dream where you feel you're <laughs> falling off a cliff and you can't sort of no matter what you're doing you can't get yourself and you wake up and it takes a few seconds just to get your senses back about you I mean what's the basis is there a scientific basis to this well, the, the, the the mind and the brain the, these are interesting organs and we still do not know everything about them neurosurgeons, neuroscientists are, are not aware of how the functioning of the brain is and how little of that we conscientiously use. So it could be that there are parts of the brain which are unconsciously controlled and they come into being and therefore we have these paranormal uh, experiences in which we have that sort of experience, out-of-body experience. But the other th interesting thing, coming back to the sleep uh, process, is that obviously we know that the soul detaches from the body permanently when death overtakes us. But sleep is also uh, is referred to as a temporary <coughs> death because the Holy Prophet ﷺ, in the prayers that he has taught us, when we are going off to sleep, Allahumma bismika amutu wahya, in your name uh, I die uh, and come back to life. And then when you wake up, Alhamdulillah, it talks of death, but that is, death is relating to the sleep, so that while we are asleep, we do not have control of our consciousness. So that is akin to a sort of death where we do not have a control of our physical bodies as well. So the, the subject of the soul detaching perhaps during that part of the sleep, when we are asleep, is a temporary detachment as well as Jahangir Sahib has said, is mentioned in the Holy Quran. But sleep paralysis is a medical condition which is recognized by the authorities. Mm -hmm. It is when you wake up or you're waking up and you don't have, mm -hmm. for a very short period, you don't have control of moving your muscles. Mm -hmm. It is because possibly because the activity of the brain has not triggered those muscles to work, is that sort of a time lag. It has a, a, a sort of medical reason for that, that perhaps there is something in the sleep pattern of the person who is suffering from that and people who have disturbed sleep patterns may be prone to that sort of thing. And I think even just this week there was something, uh, 
uh, some research on the uh, iPads and iPhones that they emit some kind of blue light and those people who go to sleep having watched these things before they fall asleep may also be affected and their sleep patterns may be affected by that. Uh, and the other thing that they're saying is that you should have a regular sleep pattern. That after all is very Islamic, isn't it? That you should go to bed at a regular time after your Isha prayers, that you are able to wake up for the Hajjud prayer and for your Fajr prayers as well. So keeping to a regular sleep pattern is something that we should train ourselves and our body. It follows the seasons also, doesn't it? It follows the season as well, just came to my mind that when the days become lengthened, our sleep is adapted to that in Islam. And when the days are shortened equally, which is a kind of a natural rhythm, you know? It's quite interesting, actually, as a point. Jazakumullah, yeah. gentlemen, for that. My thanks also to Nurlen for that question. Our next question comes from Rafi Ahmed Saab in uh, Canada. Um, and his question sentence, Azhar Saab, around the whole question of marriage. Uh, he's given us various chapters and verse from different dictionaries, etc., as to the meaning of marriage. But the central premise of what he's asking and his observations are that the whole concept of marriage about strengthening the relationship, people coming together in ties and, and for the future generation and progeny, etc. And he's putting the pr proposition or down that that perhaps marriage is not seen in the way it used to be seen. It's not given the kind of uh, sort of strength that it's given for future generation. Indeed, some, he's arguing, people don't actually see that it's no longer required and even significant for a relationship to exist. He's then gone on to talk about other elements, which we'll come to in a moment. But that central premise, if we could start with that, is marriage significant in this modern world? Well, I, I think it's quite obvious for, for anyone who looks about society and sees what people are doing, that we no longer have those so-called traditional values. On, on, from any faith perspective, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever, Hindu, in this Western world, in the, in the Eastern world, it may be somewhat different because they still have hold on, held on to those values. But uh, <clears throat> marriage is a value now. It's, it's, it's shifted with the so-called um, modernization and and the the, the sense of uh, a more liberal society where you can be a good person and don't need to follow religious traditions and, and teachings. So the result of this has been over the course of what I would say my own lifetime, I have seen my parents' generation and, the, and grandparents' generation, they would think of marriage as being a, a prominent goal in their life. At some point, they want to get married, settle down, have a family, raise the kids, the mm -hmm. whole bit, and move on. That no longer is the primary goal of, of, of a lot of people. It's not even probably a, a secondary or tertiary goal. You know, it's like mm -hmm. this is so far out of their, their, their thought concepts. So, you know, what's important? What, I, what do I need to do next? So it's more in terms of let me get educated, let me start a career, let me become successful. And along the way, let me have relations with, with the opposite gender. And those relations can be just through the forms of, of dating and mating and, and living together and, and, and all types of, of a modern you know, connections that will just we'll live in the same house or we'll live separate and come together as partners. These things are becoming more prevalent in society. And his, his question is, is, is surrounding this obvious reality that we're all facing, particularly here in the West. I'm sure UK is no different than the USA. Uh, marriage as a concept itself is being challenged. Whether we even need to have that piece of paper to, to kind of justify us mm -hmm. loving each other and wanting to live together. 
Uh, and, and then there's the other condition of people saying you can marry and you know, the, the gender is being the same and all these things going on. So it's correct, marriage is under attack in terms of an institution. Uh, the uh, attack in the sense of the value of it, the, the, the need of it as compared to the last generations. But it hasn't hit rock bottom. There still are enough people around who recognize this as a value and enough people who, who want to go along with it. But it's this uh, environmental uh, attitude that, that, that prevails that kind of causes them to struggle more than in the past. I think you, you, it's like going to the, a prize fight 15 rounds. You're ready to throw the white towel in on round number seven as opposed to round number 10 in these days, you know? Mm -hmm. Just so quickly ready to, th to throw it in. And you're going into it with the idea, that the, the get out clauses, you know? Well, I mean, the whole concept yeah. of prenuptials. Prenuptial, but even the sense that as soon as you make a mistake, that's it, I don't need you, the love is gone, mm -hmm. you know, and we can't get past this. In other, other words, in the past, Human beings weren't different. They struggled. You know, your, your, your parents and grandparents will tell you, you know, marriage is a very difficult thing at certain times. You, you'll face some challenges. Be ready for that. Nowadays, it's as if as soon as the challenge is there, you don't need this get out and, and, and start again. Not realizing you're going to face the same challenges again, no matter who you, because you're still going to be human beings. So this has to be corrected. And Islam came along at a time when the Arabs were doing the same things. It was no different then. The, the relationships were not based on what we call traditional family values. They were, in many cases, the, the tribes would have men and women come together to produce the next generation mm -hmm. of tribes. But there are all kinds of additional relations going on between men and women. You know, mm -hmm. some were women just kind of being your paramours and, and, and being mm -hmm. your, your, you know, uh, relations on the side. But um, I would say the, the the greatest teaching is that the Prophet telling us. The Holy Prophet Muhammad is telling us, yeah, an, an so For any Muslim who wants to just get the message, the simple message, this is it. Marriage is my way. Mm -hmm. And you look at his way, at 25 years of age, when any young man is thinking about, you know, finding that, that, that ideal partner, he marries a person senior to, her, to him, 15 years senior, and then remains married to her over the course of the next some, what, 30 plus years or more than that? Quite a long while. Yeah. Yeah. Long quite long for yeah. She was, uh, well, she was 30, quite uh, injured when yeah. she passed away. Uh, then, so he, yeah. he was 25 and she passed away uh, about 12th year of the call, just before he migrated to Medina. He was in his So, 50s, this, so for 15 years, from the, from the age of 40 until uh, age 25 to the age 40 when he became a prophet, it's so 15 years. That. And then another 12, well, 13 years, so it was about 30, 30 years. 37 years, mm. roughly. Mm. Uh, no, 27 years or so, yes. he may, remained married. Mm. Whatever life challenges were there, he never turned back from this person. They remained a, a solid rock in terms of a marriage. And, and then, he, this is our example. So uh, the, the, the youth would look, should look at this as the, the, the primary Dr. Saab, coming to this though, I mean one of the things Rafi Saab's also talking about is that within the Islamic context, yes we've seen in certain societies the issue of prenuptials emerge and contracts and the emphasis is almost, to quote Azhar Saab back, as Azhar Saab said, at times people are, when they get coming together they're almost looking at the option of breakdown. They're looking and saying well that's going to happen and we want to ensure that we're safe and secure and protect our assets so on and so forth. Um, Yet within Islam, the, you know, the rights of husband and wife are very clear. That is explained. The notion of marriage is the cornerstone to, again, to use the word, the institution of marriage is 
well documented. Yet let's be uh, the reality within Muslims now and in, within Islam is also one of grave concern that you mm. are seeing people taking, if you like, lacking the resilience to say, this is something that I'm committed to for the long term, for my life, for the duration of life, and actually saying, no, actually, I want out. And I think part of Rafi Saab's basis of asking his question is how that spirit, the institution of this spirit behind uh, marriage can be revived as well. Well, I think uh, Azasab has eloquently described about the societal pressures that there are on people in this day and age. And he has also redated it back to the time prior to the Holy Prophet And from the Holy Quran, we know that Allah says, Zahar al-Fasadu fil barri wal bahri, that darkness had prevailed at the time over the oceans and the seas. And mm -hmm. this society also, the, the problems in the society are also part of that problem. And today we have a similar picture and perhaps we have not gone as far as the Arab society was at that time but those problems are still prevalent today but how the Holy Prophet was to bring about that transformation can still be achieved in this day and age not everything is not perhaps lost mm -hmm. but a lot of hard work in societies does need to be done on these aspects to bring about fruitful marriages mm -hmm. and to make sure that there is harmony and peace within societies. I think, as Asaf has said about the pressures of society that young people have to, in the Western world, for instance, where we live, we see them grow up and we see the pressures that they are under, and those are the pressures that they take into the marriage, and perhaps both partners take their pressures into the marriage, and when things don't work out, they take the easy option, and rather than throwing in the towel on the seventh, tenth round, I think they throw the towel at the, in the first round, mm -hmm in many, many instances. They mm -hmm. do not give things a chance to work out. So this is something that communities, in fact, try to do and endorse to do. And I know that uh, the Ahmadiyya community has taken a proactive role in this by having counseling before the marriages are contracted mm -hmm. so that all these pressures can be brought to the forefront. All the aspirations of both parties can be brought to the forefront and they can be discussed in an open way so that solutions can be found out which can, which will not sort of uh, bite you uh, later on in, in marriage. So this is an important aspect that people would have to come and be open and make sure that they have the same goals and so they make marriage successful. And perhaps reinvigorating the, the obligations of what marriage means to both husband and wife. Absolutely. Well. I mean, one of the things that is lost on people, Muslims in, in this day and age also, is what are the duties that fall upon the husband. Mm. He is the guardian, he is the kawam, and that has to be taken on board, that he is the guardian, he is the custodian, in that he must look after the welfare of the wife. And in this society, he should not have to make the wife go out to earn the bread and, and he himself sit at home. So he himself has to take that responsibility. <coughs> and therefore, that is laid upon the husband in a very square way so that he understands absolutely categorically what, what is required. You see, uh, the whole process of finding a match within the community goes through many difficult stages. And uh, if there is a problem in the marriage, then the process also is a very lengthy one in that a lot of uh, uh, reflection, a lot of time is 
permitted by Islam mm -hmm. before that final act is, is, is committed. Mm -hmm. So this process of having reconciliation, appointing arbiters within the families, within the community mm -hmm. to try to bring re reconciliation, they're all placed in there as obstacles to divorce and, and separation. So that is what Islam recommends and that is how the community works and that is uh, a step or steps that are taken in order so that we don't go down that slippery route. And I think people forget that when divorce is sanctioned, it's uh, famously and it's been said within Islam that uh, it's the it's the least, you know, it's the most disliked Absolutely. of all things yes, legal. Yes, I'm, I'm so glad you've reminded me yeah. of that. The, the Holy Prophet wasallam, speaking of divorce has said that it is the most undesirable of all lawful things. Though it is lawful, but it is most undesirable. There is another uh, tradition of the Holy Prophet and it is said that like the angels they go and report their day's activity to Allah the Almighty at the end of the day they go and report what the believers are doing it is said that Iblis or Shaitan also has, has his people going out and reporting back to him as to what they have actually managed to do during that day and it is said that uh, when Shaitan asked uh, one person what have you been able to do in the world and he said well throughout the world there have been so many murders that have been committed and a lot of aggression and he says that is nothing and then another one reports back to him and says that uh, in the day there were so many thefts that have taken place in between people and he says no that is nothing and then the third one reports to him and he says that so many divorces and separations have taken place in the world today and Iblis Shaitan says that is the true, you have fulfilled the actual role of what disorder, destroying, destroying society is. Zakumna, Dr. Sahab, again on the concept of marriage and perhaps we can open it up a bit more as well and take uh, Shafiqur Rahman Sahab's question which perhaps you can comment on who's actually asking within the concept of marriage and Islamic marriages, the concept of polygamy and its basis. And his question is more on, on the day, you know, when, when we talk about equality of rights, and it's a valid question which is asked from a, of those who are critics of Islam, that whilst uh, polygamy is permissible, polandry is not, and what is the sort of basis in a faith which purports to be of equal treatment. But coming to this concept of marriage and then perhaps leading on to perhaps an explanation of that issue as well. Well, polyandry has never been <clears throat> the norm in any society. It does exist even today in some parts. In but there's a reason why it hasn't ever you know, taken on as a, as a trend. And the, the reason is, uh, I think Dr. Zahid Saab touched upon one part of the reason, which is that it's the man who is responsible for catering to the needs of the family. Now, he will, of course, be responsible for his own family, by that I mean his own wife and his own children. He's not responsible as such uh, to cater to the needs of other people's children. I mean, that wouldn't, even though he could help other people, but that would not be part of his uh, bounden duties to do mm -hmm. so. So if a woman has several husbands, the first issue to hand would be when she does become pregnant, and not all parts of the world, even in the West, are blessed with the opportunity to carry out genetic tests to determine paternity. How will they know whose child that is? Everyone will know who the mother is because she's the one giving birth. But the father will always remain, you know, an unknown. Mm -hmm. And therefore we can already see different circumstances where in one particular situation, maybe all the men who are the husbands of that woman 
will be fighting over the, the child, saying it's mine, it's not yours. And in another set of uh, circumstances, we might see all of them rejecting the child, said it's not mine, it's his. You know, so what mm. do you do in, in, a, in a situation like that, where even the mother isn't very sure you know, whose child it is? So these are situations which, which would cause society to absolutely break down. It's not possible. But also we see, when I was talking about trends, it has something to do with human nature as well. Mm -hmm. Had it been something natural, then it would have become a general you know, thing we'd see everywhere. But human nature is not inclined to that. Men are inclined to, to you know, try to marry more than once or have more partners than one, whereas women tend to hold on to only one. Now today, when all norms have broken down, we see that all these things are being thrown back into the mix and women are behaving like men and men are behaving like women. So th but this, uh, the, the, this situation is not one to judge any other situation by. This is an abnormal situation. We have to judge situations according to normal and uh, well-established uh, you know, cases. And the well-established case is one man, one woman. That's the well-established case throughout the world and throughout history. So we see that in the case of uh, paternity, for example, then it's very clear-cut. Now, in the case where, where paternity isn't known, even then, in Islam, the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi says that if a child is born in a house, then that child belongs to that household mm -hmm. and is born of the father in that household. So the, even there, again, you know, it's so important to, for a, ch a child to be, to be allotted to its own father that even in cases where it is maybe a little doubtful, maybe something might have happened, even then the Prophet Sallallahu is saying that don't go and you know, uh, spoil the lives of all these people. That child is born in this house, it belongs to that household. This is how it is. But when you have all these other elements coming in, like several males in the same household, then there's no telling. And uh, you know, no, the, um, it is, it'll be a Pandora's box that once opened will never be closed again. So this is why Islam wisely, as it says, it, it is the religion of the nature of man. It sticks to the nature of man, the true nature of, of mankind and uh, advises m men and women to be married but only to one partner and to stick to that partner as, m as uh, long as the partner is alive. The fourth caliph, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih used to give a very rhetorical answer to that and he, in a practical one and he, he, he said, can you imagine that if uh, each husband married four wives and each of the wives married four husbands, what would be the, 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 the uh, Dynamic dynamics yeah. of the number of partners that would exist in that household? My maths is not all that good to work that out, <laughs> but I can imagine that it's quite a large number. So what Jahangir Sahib has said about this in a practical issue, it is not a possibility that each would have four husbands and each would have four wives. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.